Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We've been looking at the life of King David, uh, certainly a man who trusted, believed with all of his heart that God is the ruler of everything. And uh, we've been seeing that David's life is an incredibly rich life. Well, as we go through this series, you're going to be seeing just about every possible topic and piece of theology uh, being thrown at you. We've looked at covenant succession and all of the principles involved in that. We've looked at uh, uh, God's calling, politics, and uh, today we're going to be seeing a very, uh, very, very important aspect of knowing God's power and His presence in our lives, beginning at verse 1. Excuse me, beginning at verse 14. Well, beginning at verse 13. I'll get it right one of these times. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to the servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who was with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we know that uh, your word was given for our sanctification, our encouragement, uh, to build us up in your most holy faith, and I pray that uh, you would enable uh, this scripture, as it is being preached, to transform us and to do its mighty work within us. We love you. We bless you. It is our glory to continue to worship as we exercise our minds and our emotions and our hearts in responding to your word. In Christ's name, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Sometime back, a fellow pastor uh, bought one of those huge puzzles, you know, those thousand-piece puzzles that that take forever to put together, uh, except he and his wife were pretty expert at them. They go through puzzles uh, like crazy. And he put it into their room. They had a special room just for puzzles and laid it all out. And when they had got it completely put together, they noticed that there was one piece that was missing. And he knew they couldn't have lost it. And there's no kids coming in and out. I mean, everything's right there on the table. So he took it back to get a refund. And the store clerk asked him something that kind of he thought it was a little bit silly. She asked, well, how far did you get before you realized there was a piece missing? And he said, the answer is pretty obvious. You don't know a piece is missing until you completely finished with the puzzle. 
And that can be the way it is in our lives apart from God's Spirit, His illumination in our lives. We can completely be oblivious to the fact that pieces are missing in our lives. That was certainly the way it was with King Saul. Uh, He saw the good things in his life, and even David admits there were a lot of good things in King Saul's life, but he just seemed to be blind to so many missing pieces that were in him. And part of the problem was that like Samson, he had truly been anointed by God's Spirit and empowered by God's Spirit uh, earlier, but because of compromises, because of sins that he just failed to deal with, Over time, there was a diminishing of this power until finally in this chapter, the Spirit of God completely leaves him. Now, this is a a passage that has puzzled a lot of Christians, confused a lot of Christians, and I have to confess, it's confused me in the past as well. I think my study this past week has given me a lot more uh, insight. Uh, Somebody asked me last week, I forget who it was, was Saul saved? And last week I said... I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. There's good arguments on both sides of that question, and I still cannot be dogmatic uh, on that. But let me give you some of the arguments that people have given as to why they believe that Saul was saved. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6, says that Saul was turned into another man. Then the next verse, verse 7, Samuel says, God is with you. Then verse 9 says, God gave him another heart, which many people take to be regeneration. And it's only after that that verse 10 says that the Spirit of God then came upon him. And this is actually a fair bit of time afterwards. And so uh, he is uh, apparently given a new heart. He's a new creature. And God is said to be with him even before he receives this anointing. Those two things seem to be... Uh, quite different. In fact, if you study the book of Judges, you will see that there were many judges who had the Spirit coming upon them at a later stage in their lives than when they were actually uh, saved. And then furthermore, uh, when Samuel came back from the dead in 1 Samuel 28, verse 19, he tells Saul, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Now, it doesn't appear to mean that uh, he's going to join him in the grave, because Saul never made it to the grave. The Philistines hijacked his body, hung it on a wall, and sometime later it got burned. Uh, It does seem that Saul and uh, Samuel are going to be together in some way in the afterlife. Well, Samuel's not in hell, ergo, they conclude. Uh, Saul must be saved. Now, there are some answers that you can give to that. Uh, because uh, where he was at, Sheol, both paradise and the hell portion of Sheol were down, uh, and many people believe. So there are answers people can give to that. But in David's eulogy, he said, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant. In their lives and in their death, they were not divided. That's 2 Samuel 1, verse 23. Now, I looked at two pages of Hebrew exegesis on that, and the weight of evidence does seem... Uh, to go in the direction that uh, they were not separated in their life and after their death they were not separated either. They were certainly separated as far as their bodies were concerned. And even in terms of the sequence of their death, uh, the uh, the sons were killed first and then Saul at some point was uh, was killed on that mountain. And so 
uh, one uh, Hebrew commentary says that the Hebrew seems to indicate they were not separated after death because they're going to the same place. Well, Jonathan is saved, so the conclusion would be Saul seems to have been saved as well. Now, of course, uh, I can give you some arguments against his being uh, saved. Uh, first one would be that Samuel said, Why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the other side might say, Yeah, but your enemy, he was fighting against God. Uh, you know, there's a lot of arguments back and forth. One of the biggest ones that people stumble over is, how could Saul have so many years of backsliddenness and still be saved? I mean, what's going on there? It just doesn't seem consistent with the way in which God sanctifies his people and uh, moves them forward. And in one sense, it really doesn't matter what you believe, whether you think he was saved or he was not saved. I think this passage was intended to give us a warning and uh, to uh, stir us up uh, to not be like Saul. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, pointed out that there are uh, so many people, both in the Scriptures and outside of the Scriptures, that if it, was not, if it was not for a clear statement from God, this person is going to heaven, this person is going to hell, uh, we cannot really be sure. For example, he says, uh, none of the disciples had any idea that Judas was going to hell. They all thought he was a fellow believer. When Christ says, one of you will offend me, they weren't all looking at Judas. They were all thinking, oh, is it me? Uh, they were self-examining. And then uh, Jonathan Edwards said, then there's Lot, who you scratch your head over, you wonder how could that man even possibly be saved? And yet Second Peter chapter 2 says he was a righteous man. His soul was vexed within him, even over his own compromises. And he was indeed a saved man. And so we can never presume upon God's grace. We always, all our days, need to be clinging uh, to the Lord God. And any one of us can end up like Saul if we do not cling to him. I think that is in part what is being communicated here. Anyway, if you want my opinion, I think I've been swayed in the direction of favoring the fact that Saul was indeed a saved um, man. And the reason he got to this point is that he had been giving Satan all kinds of legal ground uh, to mess around with his life. And most of the sermon, we're going to be looking at the phrase, for David, God was with him. The Lord was with David. But I want to start off by pointing out that uh, exactly the same phrase was used of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10, that God was with him, and yet here, God completely departs from Saul. And so this is an encouragement, it's a warning, and basically what it's saying is uh, you cannot rest upon your past achievements, you can only rest upon the Lord. He doesn't want you having faith in your faith or having faith in your past experiences. He wants your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of your faith. That's where your faith has to lie. And so we're always pressing upward into our calling in Christ Jesus. So that's just a little bit of background. I want to go back to verse 13, where he says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So David is anointed by the Spirit at age 15, and the question is, what exactly does that mean? Well, I'm here to tell you it does not mean that he got saved on this day. A lot of scriptures that indicate he was saved, converted, long, long before that. Let me just give you a couple that are in your outline. Psalm 22, verses 9 through 10, David says, 
But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. He is saying, and there could be a, a double fulfillment here, but he is a type of Christ. He was already a believer as a baby. In fact, he was regenerate in the womb. Now, Psalm 71, the other passage, is a similar one. David says in verses 5 through 6, For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. Now, even though that's not quite as clear, it seems to indicate he was trusting in the Lord from a very, very early age. And so what verse 13 of our passage is talking about is not salvation. It's talking about anointing for service. Okay, uh, When a person is anointed in this way, he was equipped and empowered for the task that God had called him to do. And the Old Testament, I think, distinguished between those two works of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. Let me just give you one example. Numbers 27, verse 18, God told Moses to take Joshua, quote, a man in whom is the Spirit, unquote, and to lay his hands upon him. So here's Joshua. He's already indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. He's already been regenerate for who knows how long. But when, God, when Moses lays his hands upon Joshua, God's Spirit comes down upon him and Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9 says, From that time on, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, two different things. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that comes at the time of regeneration. That will never, ever be taken away. But you can lose the anointing. You can lose the filling of the Holy Spirit uh, at any time. And he would then remove perhaps his protection, his wisdom, his giftings, and other aspects of the empowering for, for the calling that he has upon your life. Now this issue, this issue of anointing and filling is a very, very important issue. In the Old Testament, it appears that uh, it was primarily kings, you know, judges, prophets, maybe just a few others who had this kind of anointing, at least that we're told. But in the New Testament, especially from Pentecost onward, the Scriptures are quite clear that every believer can have this anointing and can have this filling. And when you engage in work with the power that comes from that anointing, it transforms everything that you do. So many Christians lose this anointing. They lose this infilling just like Samson did. Remember Samson? At one point, he did not know that the Lord had gone from him. And he lost his power. That was one of the things for his particular task that God was equipping him for. Here, Saul seems to lose it completely, and we have no record of him having got that back. And I have seen pastors who have started off their ministry with a vibrant ministry. I mean, you could tell that the calling and the empowering of the Lord was upon them. You could see life coming through them. You could see joy in their ministry. And I don't know what's happened, but at some point, you see a dullness in their ministry. They continue in the ministry, but you don't see the same life. You don't see, it's just a dullness. And I think what's happened is there has been a diminishing of this infilling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, even Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect God-man, I think illustrates this because 
when he engaged in his ministry, he did it as a model of how we need to minister. He was God. He could have done any miracles he wanted just by his divinity as the Son, but he chose to do everything through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, in fact, I want you to turn there with me. I, I believe that earlier than his uh, a baptism, he had an anointing of the Holy Spirit and filling of the Holy Spirit for other things like his carpentry and you know, obedience to his parents and growing in, in, in his devotions and all of those types of things. But Isaiah chapter 61, if you turn there, the Gospel of Luke quotes this passage and says this was fulfilled when Jesus was baptized, when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he went forth and ministered in the, in, in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I really do think you can have multiple uh, anointings, but uh, l- let's read this one here. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And so this is saying that the Spirit's anointing in Christ's life enabled him to engage in a ministry that was able to pluck people out of bondage to various vices, out of captivity to Satan. Uh, It it took people who had been destroyed emotionally and brought healing there. And it says there that um, there were people who were poor in spirit, couldn't do anything because they didn't have anything to contribute. And he works through them. He enriches them. And then verses 2 through 3, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Some of you guys could use some of that. You feel pretty heavy, right? And he says, that's what Christ's ministry is all about. He goes on, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, all of that flowed from the anointing that Jesus received by the Holy Spirit. And the remarkable thing about Isaiah 61 is that it goes on to say that Jesus then confers that same anointing upon all of his followers so that we too can be engaged. And he uses images like building up ruined lives and bringing joy to the joyless and bringing blessing into the lives of others. He confers that upon every one of his believers. So this anointing, this is the same kind of anointing that Othniel and Gideon and other people received, and it took them beyond their normal intelligence beyond their normal abilities and enabled them to function in the realm of the supernatural. And it's my desire that every one of you would experience that anointing and that infilling every single day. Here's the command in Ephesians 5 and verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but keep, it's the ongoing tense, keep being filled with the Spirit. He's saying there are two directions that you can go. One direction that those genuine believers in Christ and Ephesus could go is that if they are not diligent in fighting against the sins that he talks about in that chapter, they can have a dissipation. That means a vanishing away of the power of the Holy Spirit, just like Saul had. And then he says the other direction that you can go is you can keep being filled by the power of of that Holy Spirit. So there's two directions, and only two. You can't stay the same. Dissipation or filling. 
You're either moving forward in the power of God's Spirit or there's a dissipation of, uh, 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 of the Spirit's power. Now, one of the reasons I think that a lot of people are confused about where Paul, Saul stood is they think, hey, I'm a Christian. Christians can't lose the Holy Spirit. And uh, we have to say, well, in one sense that's true, but in another sense that is definitely not true. Certainly we can never lose the Holy Spirit's hold upon our lives for all of eternity because we cannot lose our salvation. No one can pluck us out of the Father's hand, but we can certainly lose uh, the, the, the anointing of God in our lives to the point where we become vulnerable to Satan and demons can do anything that they want with us. And I want to expand on this a little bit. In fact, most of the sermon is going to be point number one. So if you're wondering if we'll ever get through this, this outline, I'm going to be spending most of my time on point number one here. And I want you to notice in verse 14 that this power is revocable. Okay? Verse 14 says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit, and that's literally an evil spirit, an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. There are th three things I want you to notice here. And the first one is that God sent that evil spirit to Saul. People say, whoa, what's, what's going on here? I mean, God only does good things. Yes, he does good things, only good things. But sometimes he uses even Satan as a tool in his hand for promoting his kingdom. You know, when the brothers of jo um, Joseph, Joseph did evil, says, you intended evil, but God overruled. He used that to promote uh, good uh, in their lives. And so what he is saying here, I think it's probably a situation where a demon is seeing legal ground in, in uh, Saul's life, and he's saying, God, there's legal ground here. Can I have permission to go and harass him? And God says, yes, you can go ahead and do it. That's exactly what the demon uh, said to God in First Kings when, or Second Kings when, um, uh, remember there was a demon who wanted to be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets of Ahab, and uh, God says, "Yes, you can go, and you will prosper." God is sending that demon. What it is actually, it's a form of discipline that God is using in a person's life. So the first thing I want you to notice is God is sovereign even over those who are demonized. There is nothing outside the scope of God's sovereignty. He is in control, and we ought not to fear the demonic. God is the sovereign we ought to fear. Second thing I want you to notice is that Saul previously had the anointing of the Spirit upon him. I think it's so clear here. 1 Samuel 10, verses 6 and 10, gives exactly the same language for Saul that it gave for David in verse 13 here. See, the Spirit of the Lord, it says, came upon Saul... And as soon as the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, it enabled him to prophesy. And it enabled him to be bold, incredibly bold, in chapter 11, whereas in chapter 10, previous to this anointing, he had been shy and timid and insecure. When he's anointed by the Spirit, in chapter 11, it gives him incredible uh, gifting and leadership, whereas almost every commentator says, what's going on here? In chapter 10, he doesn't seem to show any kind of a leadership. And so this gives him conviction, it gives him passion, it gives him power that he did not have prior to that anointing. And uh, yet, we see a dissipation of that. It starts in chapter 13, where he starts rationalizing his sin, and there is a little bit of a dissipation of that power. Why? 
because he's grieved the Holy Spirit. And we must never look to the Holy Spirit as a power. He's a person. Okay, there's a relationship that uh, we are involved in that is being nurtured. Chapter 14, we see anger that is not repented of. And then this anger leading to bitterness. And this, there is a further dissipation. Dissipation means a vanishing away. Uh, either you're being filled with the Spirit on a daily basis, or you're losing that filling of the Holy Spirit. Filling, dissipating. It didn't happen overnight. When those sins were not properly acknowledged and forsaken, they grew. And so his anger grew, his bitterness grew, and those sins became the fertilizer for even other sins. That's the process of dissipation or vanishing. In chapter 15, we saw last time that there were sins of pride and fear of man and rationalization and minimization of sin and justification of sin and giving in to demonic temptations. And things get so bad that Samuel finally confronts him and he says this, he rebukes him, that his, quote, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord he has also rejected you from being king. Now, when Samuel says that his, that his sin was as the sin of witchcraft, there's obviously some demonic that has been going on even before he completely loses this anointing uh, of, the, of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's dissipation. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you're losing the protection of the Spirit. It gives opportunity to other demons uh, to take advantage. And I want you to remember that Samuel did not say that Saul was being rejected as a child of God in chapter 15. He said he was being rejected as a king. It's a big difference between those two. In fact, even Samuel treated him. Uh, he loved Saul, treated him as being a, a genuine believer, and he wished... <laughs> that God would not reject Saul. I think part of the problem is we've got uh, a parent who was not disciplining his children, that was Samuel, and so he almost disapproves of God disciplining Saul. And so we, we, we've got kind of a different perspective that Samuel has of the situation than what God has. And I think that Samuel was hoping that Saul would repent and that he'd be able to be restored. But what happens in the Christian life is there is an invisible line. You cross over that, and uh, there probably is no restoration after that. This is not the unforgivable sin. Only unbelievers can engage in that. This is more like the sin in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7 that he says there's a sin unto death, and you don't, don't even bother praying for that. Okay, You can go... Uh, to a point where God says, okay, I'm going to take you out. I'm no, no longer going to be using you, uh, using you on that. Well, this just leads for Saul going, getting worse and worse, even being willing to murder because he's trying to hold on to what the Spirit is stripping away from him. All he can do is operate in the, in the flesh. This is the kind of downward slide that he goes into. Now, I do want to read from a commentary, and I don't usually make, uh, but this is just one paragraph. I don't think it's uh, too long. Gary Kukas, and he's summarizing the position of Walter Kaiser. He says, Kaiser et al. present to us what God the Holy Spirit did on behalf of Saul. Exactly what the Spirit's presence with Saul entailed is not explained, but it seems to have included the gift of government, the gift of wisdom and prudence in civil matters, and a spirit of fortitude and courage. 
These gifts can be extrapolated from the evidence that after Saul was anointed king, he immediately shed his previous shyness and reticence to be in the public eye. It is obvious that Saul did not have a natural aptitude for governing, for if he had, why did he hide among the baggage when he knew already what the outcome would be? But when the Spirit of God came upon him in connection with the threatened mutilation of the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead in 1 Samuel 11, and Saul sent out word that all able-bodied men were to report immediately for battle, the citizens of Israel were so startled that this had come from the likes of Saul that they showed up in force. God had suddenly gifted him with the Spirit of God, 1 Samuel eleven six, and Saul was a great leader for 20 years. But all of this was lost as suddenly as it had been gained. The Spirit had removed his gift of government. In other words, it is clear that via the Spirit of God, Saul revealed leadership strengths which he obviously did not possess before. I'm spending so much time on this because unless God is with you by way of anointing and infilling, Ephesians 5 through 6 says it will negatively impact your ability to worship, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, your relationships at work, your ability to successfully engage in spiritual warfare. Look up just about any commentary on Ephesians 5, and they'll start with that verse, do not be drunk with wine wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And they'll say, this then is the basis by which you will prosper in all of those areas I just listed from Ephesians 5 uh, through 6. Uh, all of those things begin to dissipate when you hold on to sin like Saul did. So again, if you're not moving forward by the power of the Spirit, automatically you're going to be moving backward into dissipation. This is not legalism. Some people say, oh, that's legalism. It's not legalism. It's relationship. You are dealing with a holy person who loves you and is using this very dissipation to make you uncomfortable with your state and make you want to come after him. In fact, the Puritans kept speaking of God's desertions. He says, God, one, one Puritan said, God deserts you so that you will not desert God. Okay? He takes away the comfort and the power of his presence so that you will long for that presence a whole lot more. Now, I've probably repeated myself uh, sufficiently here, but uh, this really is the ultimate contrast between Saul and David. Now, there's good debate on whether he's a believer or he's not a believer. That's not the ultimate contrast here. The ultimate contrast, Saul was not willing to slay the enemy of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He made a peace treaty with Amalek. And uh, God keeps bringing this up because it's a symbol of everything that's wrong about Saul. Even all the way up to 1 Samuel chapter 28, he says, the reason I'm continuing my favor with David, but I did not with Saul, is because Saul would not uh, kill Amalek, okay? David was different. Anytime he was caught in sin, he, he quickly repented. He, he, he longed for the Lord. It's not like he was without sin. But he wanted to go after the enemy for all he was worth. And the one exception with Bathsheba, when Nathan confronted him, he realized what danger he was in. He knew he could lose this same anointing. Uh, let me read from Psalm 51. He has a, that's, a, that's a model of repentance. If you ever want to know how to repent, go to Psalm 51. But in there, he knows it can be revoked. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. So he recognized his ministry would be powerless if God's spirit was removed from him. This does not have to do with salvation. Now, it's true. If you don't have the anointing, you're going to lose the joy of your salvation. That's the subjective aspect. But even that passage uh, indicates you're not going to lose the objective salvation itself. That can never be lost. And so, brothers and sisters, if uh, there's only one lesson that you learned this morning, I'll be grateful if it's this lesson right here. When you are convicted by God's Spirit uh, concerning some, some sin, some breakage between you and your spouse or your kids or some other person, immediately go to them and, and confess and say, you know what, I feel real bad what I said. I, I should not have said that. Scripture says those words should never come out of my mouth. Please forgive me. Here's what I should have said instead. And uh, maybe there's even restitution that you might do. But King Saul, even though he did that, what is it, about three times, it was rare that Saul could bring himself to have that kind of humility that David did in humbling himself. By the way, if you want to look at how to war, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you pick up that book we gave you as a gift uh, several months ago, The Christian in Complete Armor by William Gurnall. Wow. How to Fight Against the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. It is an incredible, incredible book. Do not let that gather dust on your shelf, okay? Pull it down. Start reading just a couple of pages every day in your devotions. I think you'll find it's incredible ideas of how to keep walking in the filling of the Spirit and in His power. Okay, we need to hurry to show what it means for the Lord to be with David. And there's a lot of different ways he was with David, but providences. God was with David by providences. A lot of cool things here. Uh, First of all, when Saul gets demonized, Saul's servants could have just been confused and say, you know, the guy's just crazy. But they recognized demonism. Somehow they must have seen demonization elsewhere. They recognized it, and they're reformed enough to know that this cannot be outside of God's control. So they say in verse 15, surely a distressing spirit, and again, literally, it's an evil spirit, it's a demon, surely an evil spirit from God is troubling you. They're reformed enough to recognize Satan and his demons cannot do a thing without God's permission, but they're not reformed enough to bring the true solution and call Saul to repentance and restoration. Instead, what they do is they put a Band-Aid on cancer. And that's what verse 16 really is. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. Apparently, they had seen prophets, you know, using music uh, in spiritual warfare, and it had been successful. They thought, cool, this is is what we ought to be uh, uh, seeking. By the way, there was a whole school of prophets under Samuel. You look earlier in the book, we didn't talk about this, but he was training them in music and spiritual warfare, other things that these prophets engaged in. And so they saw that, but here is the problem. Getting rid of a demon temporarily is only a band-aid on cancer. It's never going to remove the reasons why those demons keep coming back and keep coming back to Saul. Uh, Jesus said sometimes when the house is cleansed and it's not uh, restored the way it should be, those demons will bring back other demons that are even worse than them. 
Uh, nevertheless, God guides David into Saul's presence through this inadequate advice, and uh, you can see his hand at work. Verse 17, Saul's in a frame of mind where he's willing to receive this advice. He is so scared of this demonic torment that he is undergoing that he thinks, great, okay, you know, uh, I'm willing to do anything, which is not a good idea, by the way. Some people, uh, you know, they, they're willing to do anything in order to get healed. I've seen some people demonized because they go to the wrong people uh, to get healed. Uh, but, uh, in fact, William Gurnall's book, he says, not only should you not use unbiblical methods for dealing with sin, you could have the right goal, but the wrong methods. But don't just use partial methods. This is only one part of the arsenal, and it's a good part. Spiritual warfare through music, very, very good part. We'll look at that in a bit. If that's all you use, you're going to fail. Uh, <clears throat> nothing but the deep-seated repentance that, uh, that Psalm 51 shows uh, can remove Satan's legal ground. Now in verse 18, we see somebody just happened to know about David. Now, apparently, there's lots of other prophets out there that are playing music. In the earlier parts of Samuel, which we haven't looked at, they could have picked any one of those, but God makes sure David's the one who gets picked because God wants David to see the problems of kingship. He wants David to begin to hate the kind of rationalization of sin and the bad ways that Saul's dealing with sin. He wants David to get experience in dealing with spiritual warfare. God is at work providentially. Then, of course, no one knows that David's been anointed to become king. That'd be a kind of a dangerous thing <laughs> for him to go there. God keeps it that way. He's sovereignly in control. Verse 20, we see Jesse's able to spare David, sends David with a gift. Verse 21 through 22, we see God makes sure that Saul loves David. So David came to Saul, stood before him. He loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse saying, please, let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So just really, when you look at it and you know what's going to happen down the road, it makes you smile at God's providence. But what I want to do, instead of looking at all of those verses, I want to focus in on verse 18 because I think this is such a, a neat way of wrapping up the blessings of having God with you. Now, let, let, let me give you some timing issues, first of all. From verse 13 through verse 23 is a spread of three years. Okay, so in verse 13, David is 15 years old. Chapter 17, David is approximately 18 years old. We don't know exact age, but uh, there's very, very strong evidence. He was approximately 18 years old, and I won't get into all the reasons. Believe me, it took me, it took me weeks to figure, figure that out and researching from different... Uh, but I, I'm 100% confident that that's about the, the range there. We don't know exactly how long before he got to Saul's court and how long after he was in the courtroom. Uh, some people suppose weeks from verses 13 to 19. Some people say months. Couldn't be much more than a year. Very unlikely to be much more than a year. Uh, and the reason we know that is because in chapter 17, verse 15, you see that David, during this time period uh, that he's in the court, he's going back and forth from Jesse's to take care of sheep, then he goes back to Saul. So there has to be a fair transition of time in the court. So let's just suppose that it's uh, somewhere between six months and a year. I think that would give enough time for the things that have to happen before and the things that have to happen afterwards. So let's take a look at these verses. Verse 18 then one of the servants answered and said, 
Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing. Part of David's anointing was prophetic. It wasn't just any kind of music that they were looking for. I believe they were looking for prophetic music. And like I said, there was a school of the prophets that may have even been teaching him this. But even if you don't buy into that, most commentators believe at least a few of the Psalms were probably written in this period from verse 13 through verse 19. Second, God was with David by making him a mighty man of valor. Now, that's remarkable to call a 15 to 16-year-old a mighty man of valor. This guy who's in Saul's court, I mean, he's, he's probably a pretty tough guy himself. And for him to say that about David, there must have been something in David's life that just made him say, wow, this guy, this guy is an incredible person. I think these verses is when... The, the fight with the lion and the fight with the bear took place. And there's other commentators uh, who believe that as well. Could have happened earlier, but the way 1 Samuel is written, it seems that the writer is wanting us to believe this was another evidence of the anointing that was upon David that he was able to have the kind of courage to take on that bear and the courage to take on that lion. In any case, whatever it was, this guy says he is an, an incredible man of valor. Um, then, and chapter 17 talks about the, the fighting with the lion and the bear. Then the next thing that he mentions is um, David is a man of war. Now, this has puzzled many, many people uh, because David was too young to be in the army. Okay, you had to be 20 before you were in the army ordinarily. And yet it says he's, he's a man of war, and it's made some commentaries, and especially some liberal commentaries, say this is totally out of order. Whoever redacted this accidentally put this in before chapter 17. This clearly belongs after chapter 17. Well, if you put it after chapter 17, you're going to have a few tensions as well. Really, it's not an issue at all. To be a man of war, all David has to do is fight with some Philistines. And not all of the Philistines were in the army, Chapter 13, verse 17, call, uh, speaks about some Philistine raiders. Now, if you, you study the history of the Philistines, here's what happened. A lot of the men went off to fight in the army, and there's these guys that are just taking advantage of the fact that the men are away from the farms. They're going in and raiding, and they're plundering these farms. And so the people who stay behind, they have to do their best to protect the property. And apparently David did a fantastic job of protecting the property because that's the only place he would have been able to be known as a man of war. Uh, young boys and even young girls in early America, they, they were taught how to shoot. <laughs> Why? Because were, you couldn't count on the armies being around to protect you. In Israel, as well as in early America, everybody was expected to know self-defense. So have you taught your boys to fight and to shoot? Uh, I think it's something that's that, that's important to do. But anyway, David must have killed enough Philistines of these raiders who came by that this guy, he takes notice and he says, wow, th this, this young guy is a man of war. What an incredible compliment for a 15 to 16-year-old uh, person. The next thing that the Spirit of God produced in this young man was uh, an ability that verse 18 describes as prudent in speech. He wasn't a hothead. He didn't fly off with his mouth like Saul on occasion did. 
Apparently, God's Spirit, His anointing, enabled David to control that uncontrollable tongue. Remember, James says no man can control it, but it also says God can. So when we have God's anointing, that's one of the things we should say, Lord, I want your filling in my life. I want my lips to be prudent speech coming out of them. And we could be praying that God would anoint us to that end. And then finally, oh, I missed one here. Next item is he's a handsome person. I don't actually think that's a good translation. Uh, I looked it up in the Hebrew dictionary, and it says, quote, it probably never means appearance, unquote. And then it cites the RSV as a better translation, as a man of good presence. That's the way the ESV takes it as well. Now, you probably know what that's like. It's a person who just stands out. There's something different about him. You can't ignore him. He stands out. And he, he's got a presence about him. I think that's what's going on in David's life. And then finally, the man sums it up by saying, and the Lord is with him. So this whole section that we're looking at this morning is one of the most important sections in the whole book. It is the hinge on which the whole book swings. In fact, a lot of commentaries point out verse 13 and verse 14 is smack dab in the center of the book. Verse 13, God is with David. Verse 14, God is not with Saul. Okay, and there's an increasing problem in Saul's life. There's an increasing power in David's life. That's the heart of the book, and everything flows forward or up to uh, those two verses. And I really want to encourage you to covet, to desire that that phrase would be true of you, that everybody would recognize the Lord is with you. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. He's one of those guys that the Lord was with. And you know what? Everything Joseph did prospered. And the people he worked for prospered. So, you know, when he was doing some carpentry work, he didn't have to cut a timber and make a mistake and throw it away and cut another timber. No, God gave him wisdom to be able to cut it right and to do everything that was needed for building and for, uh, you know, the, the, the financial tallies and everything else that went into being a steward. And so the Scripture seems to indicate that when you are anointed by God, you're filled by His Spirit, God gives you a heightened capacity and ability to do anything that God has called you to do. Anything. Doesn't matter how, uh, how material or how immaterial that thing may be. I think that there are some people who really show that God's hand is upon them in carpentry. They just... Everything they do, they, they could just do it just like that. And there's other people whom God has anointed in a special way for whatever, you know, um, computer software programming or, you know, being a peacemaker or being a, a warrior, whatever. God can be with us. But here's the point. And I should say, just like Joseph, it's not just God blesses you. Everybody that you are working for gets blessed as well. The people that you are around, that's what we should want in our lives. Now, it's not automatic. It's not automatic for the Christian. This is something we must seek every day of our lives. That's the encouragement in the New Testament. He commands us, keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. If it's not sought, what you're going to be doing is you're just being coasting through life, waiting for your life to end. That's what Saul had happen to him. And what a tragedy. What an absolute waste. And yet some people are wasting their lives because they act like Saul. They do not have the humility to be able to ask for forgiveness and to humble themselves before God and uh, before, uh, before others. And uh, yeah, they might be good citizens and they might be good members of the church and generous with their money and they might be doing a lot of different things, but they never stop to ask themselves, is there something more in life 
I'm hungering for something more in life than just doing things. I want God's blessing upon me when I'm doing things. And so God's Spirit is always drawing us into this because He wants us to be blessed. And so He's convicting us. He's saying, you shouldn't be doing this. You should, you should be doing something else. And we try to hush the voice of the Holy Spirit because it's so uncomfortable. Oh, I don't think I want to do that. You're hushing God's blessing. You're hushing God's power in your life. You never hush the Holy Spirit. That's what this is about. You never hush God up. These people are not like David, who hungered and hungered for more and more after God, and consequently, they missed out on the supernatural in their lives. And I want to end with the supernatural ability to engage in spiritual warfare with demons. Okay, verse 23. So it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing or the evil spirit would depart from him. First thing I want you to notice here is that Saul was absolutely powerless against demons because he was compromised. He was powerless. Now, some Christians naively think they can go through their whole lives and there isn't anything that Satan can do, you know, to touch them or to afflict them. And that's just absolutely not right. In fact, I've had people quote to me, well, Phil, 1 John 5, 18 says that everyone who is born of God, the wicked one cannot touch him. You misquoted that. Let me read that for you. We know that whoever is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God, while keeping himself or while guarding himself, the wicked one does not touch him. The implication is if you guard your heart, the wicked one cannot touch you. But the implication is if you don't guard your heart, he can touch you. And the implication of that verse is also, if you continue persisting in sinning, 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 never repenting of your sin, the likelihood is you've never been born of God. David did have his own periods of dissipation, so true believers can. Uh, incident with Bathsheba, his failure to discipline his children, uh, his numbering of Israel. And what he was doing is he was giving some opportunities for Satan to influence his life. First Chronicles 27 says that Satan immediately took advantage. Satan moved him to number Israel. So yes, Satan can affect us. Let me give you some other examples. Luke 13 records the healing of a genuine believer. It's a woman who had a back infirmity that was so bad she could never straighten up. And here's how Jesus describes this woman. Describes her as, quote, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years. That's Luke 13, verse 16. So here's a true believer that's been bound by Satan for 18 years. Read the last few verses of Matthew chapter 18. It's the whole parable of the unforgiving uh, servant. And at the end, he says, so your heavenly Father will also do to you if you don't forgive each other from your own heart. He's saying God will give permission for the demonic tormentors to torture you. That's the word that's used, torturers. God will do to each of you if you do not forgive. Basically, demons are saying, hey, this person is so bitter. God, can I afflict this person? God says, yeah, you got legal ground to go after that person. That's exactly what is going on. There's many other scriptures that say something like that that indicate you can end up like Saul if you don't guard your hearts. We will be powerless against Satan. In fact, in my ministry, 
Uh, over the years, I have run across numerous Christians who have been tormented by demons, blinded spiritually by demons, where they just couldn't even, they couldn't even see their sin. Had people tell me, I, I don't think I've ever sinned. They cannot see their, their own sins. Moved by demons, some, some of them have had weird demonic things happening in their homes, uh, demonic nightmares, a spirit of ill will that's come between them and their husband or them and some other person. And in other ways, they were powerless to deal with the demonic even though they were believers. Now, they were not possessed by Satan. Only God can possess you, okay? You belong to him. You don't belong to Satan. But you can be demonized. You can be afflicted. One, uh, actually... Um, one of the homes that uh, I went to, there's been quite a number of times where I've been teaching people, how do you take authority as the head of your household over your home to keep demons out? You can make it into a sanctuary where it's a peaceful place to go. So I've been modeling for them, walking through. And, uh, and uh, there have been some homes in this congregation, and if you talk enough amongst people, people say, yeah, that was probably me where you could sense the demonic so strongly, it was obvious. And as I began questioning, if they had been given legal ground, oh man, it was all over the place. I mean, one place had a number of things. One of them was an occult game. And I said, what's with this? You know, you gotta, you gotta burn this. You gotta get rid of this. Another place had a, a book that was, I think the demons were just gleefully saying, okay, Lord, they got that book. Can I go in and torment that person? That's exactly what was going on. We've had two families... Uh, in the history of this church, where I have gone repeatedly, we've successfully cleaned the demons out of that home, and they were right back again because these people were living like Saul. Just a temporary fix. Wasn't anything you could do because they were unwilling to be like David in Psalm 51 and take away the legal ground, put it under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32 says that when you lie, when you allow the sun to go down in your anger, when you have corrupt speech, bitterness, wrath, clamor, gossip, evil speaking that's not repented of, he says, you give place to the devil. And the literal translation is you give a foothold to the devil. He can get into your life. He can do whatever he wants in your life when you're not repenting of those things, when you're not putting them under the blood of Christ. Some people have found that they started having the demonic in their lives when they started viewing pornography and treating it as no big deal. Other people have, have had it when when they've had allowed bitterness to go on or rebellion to go on in their home. And that was one of Saul's sins, wasn't it? That he said was as the sin of witchcraft. That's, that's pretty tough. Any one of us can give legal ground to Satan. In fact, our family did it. I don't know if I should even share this, but I think I will. <laughs> um, I was gone up to Canada, and uh, we have international students who live with us, and uh, a Korean came into the home and a lot of times, we don't know what the things are, and we'll toss them later, but this time, this Korean student came to Kathy and said that this was, uh, this was an idol, and if you ever get sick, just pray to this idol, and you will be healed. And I don't remember now what Kathy said. I'm sure she said, no, we only pray to, to God. But she received it, and I'm sure there must have been demons who were saying, legal ground, can I come into the Kaiser household? And almost immediately, she began to suffer pain. And that night, she thought she was dying. And, uh, and she could barely cry out. She cried out for Jesus to, 
to rescue her and had some relief. She called me. We prayed over the situation. We told, look, get rid of that idol tonight. Don't even wait till the morning, uh, tomorrow morning. And as soon as the idol was gone, the legal ground was gone, and uh, she got over what she was going. My point is, any of us can give legal ground to Satan, and we've got to be on guard against that. Second thing to note is that David had power to resist the demon. So here's two believers in the same room. One is powerless, the other not powerless at all. Every time David comes in there, the demon has to leave. You don't need to fear a thing from Satan if you are guarding your heart, if you're walking with him. If God is with you, you don't need to fear a thing. Now, Ephesians does not say, be strong in your own strength. He says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, right? That's the only might that makes you powerful over Satan. Third thing to notice is that some music has power over demons. A lot of people are surprised by that, but some music, not all music, some music has power over demons. Now, the reverse is also true. In Ezekiel 28, verse 13, it indicates that Satan was created as a very musical creature. Satan is a master of music, and he can use music to try to overcome the kingdom of God. And he uses it for all that he is worth. I, I, I rebuked a Christian, and again, it was in our congregation a few years ago, who was listening to this rock and roll that had absolutely demonic lyrics. And I said, what are you doing listening to this? Stuff? And he was kind of brushing it aside and said, well, I don't listen to the lyrics. I, I just like the music. And I said, that's impossible. Those lyrics are going into your mind, even into your subconscious. And besides that, you're giving legal ground to Satan. But back to our passage... God uses music as one of the means to resist Satan. I don't have time to get into it this morning because it looks like we're getting late, but one of the things I would encourage you to do sometime, read through the book of Revelation and just note all of the places where there's music and notice the incredible power that that music has in bringing judgments upon the earth and bringing the advancement of God's kingdom and checking the advancement of Satan's kingdom. There is a power in spiritual warfare music and in worship music. And I encourage you guys, play music. Play good worship music that glorifies God and His righteousness and His strength in your home continually. It is a wonderful, wonderful tool. Okay, now... When we get to chapter 19, we're going to be seeing it's not a permanent solution by itself, and it's certainly not an absolute solution, because in chapter 19, David is playing the spiritual warfare music, and the demon, rather than leaving, motivates Saul to try to kill David, right? Uh, He still hates the music. It irritates these demons. It, it, It does loosen their power upon people, but it's not an absolute thing all by itself. And so this demon tries to kill the musician, But even here in this verse, you can see uh, that it's not permanent because the word whenever indicates that the demon kept coming back into Saul's life at later times. Saul didn't want true help. He wanted relief. That's all he wanted. Too many people come to me for counseling because they want me to fix their spouse or they want me to fix their kids, but they're not willing to do the repentance for the sins that they have contributed to this problem. What they're wanting is relief. They want me to play a little harp to make their problems go away. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. God cares about your holiness a whole lot more than He cares about your comfort. 
God is even willing to send you demons to afflict you so that you will cry out to God and say, Okay, Lord, Uncle, I want to be holy. I want to be close to you. I want your power in my life. There, are, there were some times of half-hearted repentance on the part of Saul, but it was never deep, it was never lasting, and consequently the demons were able to keep coming back over and over again. Now, we aren't told if God ever brought Saul to genuine repentance. Maybe on that last day in the battlefield, you know, God maybe brought him to repentance, but I can guarantee you this. Based on 1 John, if he was a truly saved person, Saul was eventually brought to repentance because God was using this misery to make him cry out to God and bring him to himself. If Saul was not saved, I can guarantee you this. He traded in affliction from one demon in this life to affliction by millions of demons in the life to come. And I don't want any of you to ever have to face that. The only way you can avoid it is by unconditional surrender to King Jesus. That's where salvation begins, unconditional surrender. That's where it continues uh, all the way through. It's nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Lord, I cannot contribute anything on my own, but I want you. I want victory. And so I repent of this sin. I once again trust you, and I once again yield my life in unconditional surrender to whatever you want me to do. And automatically, God's going to test that and say, okay, I want you to do this. And it's going to, ha, 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 that's so hard. You really want me to uh, tell people that I have done that sin or whatever? And let me tell you something. It is worthwhile. David had tests. He had God taking some things from him. He had uh, uh, things that he brought into David's lives that were difficult. But David would have testified, it is totally worthwhile. Totally worthwhile because David, anytime he felt any distance from the Lord, any dissipation of this filling, what does he do? He cries out to the Lord. He says, like a heart longs for the water brooks. Lord, my heart longs for you. I don't want to go a minute of any day without you, without your power, without your infilling. That should be our attitude. Walking in the Spirit transforms everything that we do. It enables our mind, it enables our actions to go beyond what is human and to walk in the area of the supernatural. Now, in a moment, we're going to be singing the hymn, Trust and Obey, because it's such a, it's a hymn that says, yes, it's worth it to trust and obey because God is with you. And it's my prayer that this would be the testimony of every one of you. God is with me, and I don't care what is taken away. I don't care what happens to me so long as you are with me. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I pray that this phrase would be true of us, so true that anybody who knows us would be able to say, the Lord is with her, the Lord is with him. Father, we want to walk in the power of your Holy Spirit, and yet we see how easy it is for our flesh to drag us away from that. Lord, we know we cannot achieve any of this in our own strength. It's not us. It's you and your grace we want to cling to. So, Father, help us all of our days to not be presumptuous, to not uh, think that we can just get away with anything, but, Father, to, to, to cling to you, to long to be holy, to press into that upward calling that we have in Christ Jesus. Bless this, your people, Father, with joy indescribable and full of glory that, that Gary talked about earlier as they are filled with your Holy Spirit. Bless them, Father, with victory. Bless them 
a father with a success in their battles against the evil one. May this whole congregation be a congregation that could have it said of them, the Lord is with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.